Easter, Rocky Peak. Isn't it good to be back together again? Remember last year, we weren't able to do this. It's just so good to be with you, whether it's here uh, in our worship center, for those of you out in the patio, over in the ridge, or joining us online. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, like Dre, I just want to welcome you. I just hope you have a great, uh, great Easter with us. We are going to go to our time of teaching right now. And uh, as Dre mentioned, more so than normal, especially if you don't happen to have uh, a Bible uh, with you or your app, and especially if you're online, you're going to want to download that uh, message note sheet to help you follow along. We'll be using it a lot today. But if you guys are ready to go, I'm going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. And God, we're just excited to be here on this resurrection weekend, uh, remembering this event that changed all of human history. God, there's this breaking of a dawn into human history that the world will never be the same. And so, Father, we pray today as we come that, Jesus, I pray that you'd help me to uh, explain, to share the story of that first day in such a way that would help it come to life and we'd see it in new ways. And I pray for the gift of your spirit that he would open our eyes uh, in a fresh way to this incredible reality that we're going to be studying. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts early in the morning, and frankly, he's gone to bed extremely late. Uh, and the reason he went to bed so late is because he's afraid he's not going to be able to sleep. And uh, sure enough, uh, that's exactly how it's got. And he's not sure how long he's tossed and turned, but... He's pretty sure he hasn't got a lot of sleep. But as he's just waking up, um, it's still dark out. It's just that, kind of that first light of day is beginning to break in. And as he lays there in bed, he, he realizes all of a sudden that there's a, a knock at the door. And it's not just a, a gentle knock. It's a hard knock. It's an insistent knock. There's a sense of almost frantic. And all of a sudden he realizes this is why he's woken up, that it's his knock that's brought him to sleep or brought him awake. And so he's still a little bit disoriented, but getting up, he quickly gets dressed and heads to the front door. As he's going, he's wondering who would be coming at this time of day and why. And as he opens the front door, he sees her. And that's how it starts. Well, today uh, is Easter weekend. And for those of you who are brand new, whether it's online or, or here in the worship center, um, a special welcome. Uh, we're, we're in the midst of a series right now here at Rocky Peak that's called Signs, uh, the Path to Life. And what, what this series is, it's an in-depth study of the life of Jesus is seen through the eyes of one of his closest friends and followers, a man that we know as John, or we call him the Apostle John. And what, what John is doing in turn is he's inviting us to join him on a journey as he shares with us his firsthand experiences of the life, the teaching of Jesus, with special attention or focus on uh, seven of his supernatural miracles. We call them signs, supernatural signs or miracles that Jesus performed over the three years of his ministry that he personally witnessed um, that help us to understand who Jesus is, kind of why he's come, 
and the path to life. Now, uh, for those of you who are brand new with us, we're still very early in this series. In fact, we're only in chapter four of John's gospel. It's got 21 chapters, and we've only looked at the first of these seven signs. But what I want to do today, because it's Easter, is I want to jump to the end of the story and look at the final sign. And this is a sign that happens on that first Easter morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to John chapter 20. Um, if you don't happen to have your Bible or an app with you, I've actually put the, the entire passage we're going to be reading inside your program today so you can follow along, mark it up, and so on. There in your note sheet is a section called Signs First Light. Now, as you, as you turn there, let me set it up. So, so here's the stage. Um, in the last two chapters, John, the apostle, he's uh, detailed for us, documented, chapter 18 and chapter 19, the arrest, the um, kind of the beatings and the execution of Jesus uh, on a Roman cross for the, for the crime of high treason against Rome, claiming to be a king. And so we, we, we've, uh, he's just described how Jesus has been uh, crucified on Friday afternoon. And of course, uh, the Jewish Sabbath starts at Friday evening at sundown. And so Jesus' body has recently been taken down off the cross. The, uh, the Roman guard has stuck a sword into his side, into his heart sack to make sure that he's truly dead. He's already been dead. And so he's been taken down. And so uh, his friends, some of his friends have, have just a very short time to prepare his body for burial before sundown. They have to, they have to be done before sundown. And so they're going to do a rush job. They're going to, they're going to use a lot of, uh, lot of uh, spices, actually 75 pounds, but it's a, it's a rush job. It's not a proper burial. And in Jewish culture, proper burial is extremely important. So they're going to do the best they can in the couple hours they have before sundown, and they're going to leave him. And now on Sunday morning is the first opportunity after the Sabbath that they can come back and finish the job and do it up right. And so that's where our, our story is going to start. It's, uh, it's Sunday morning. It's very early. Uh, all four Gospels agree on this, that this is where the story starts. John will describe it as very dark. It's still dark. Uh, Matthew will describe it as happening at dawn. Um, uh, Mark will describe it as uh, right after sunrise. Luke will describe it as very early morning, but they all agree it's happening very early. That's why I'm calling it at first light. And so we're picking up the story there in John chapter 20 and verse 1. And uh, it says, early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, uh, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, like the tomb where Jesus had been buried, and she saw that the stone, this would be like a huge stone, probably like a huge checker, picture like a huge stone wheel, uh, very thick, very big, that usually would be, uh, there'd be like a, a carved groove in front of the grave that you could walk into. So this would can be rolled along to cover that off. And it was, it was there because uh, it was to protect the body from being uh, attacked by wild animals uh, or from grave robbers, which were uh, which a huge problem in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so she's, she's heading for the tomb. It's still dark. Now, it's interesting because all four Gospels tell us this, that there were a group of women that went together that first morning to check this out. Each of the Gospels highlights different women by name. 
Um, but uh, uh, all four Gospels mention Mary Magdalene. In fact, they put her first in the list, very likely because, as we'll see later today, she's actually going to be the first disciple of Jesus who's going to see him alive. And so she, uh, John, for his purpose, he's going to focus in on her experience. And so she, she goes to the tomb of Jesus. It's still very early and a first light. And uh, she sees that this stone has been removed. Now, this is bad news. There's no reason for this to happen. Um, and she's going to assume that the body has been moved, the body's been stolen, someone's been messing with the body. Now, I want you to catch this because you'll see this in all four gospel accounts that the resurrection is going to take everyone by surprise. Uh, no one's expecting it. And from what we know of first century, first century Judaism, there was nothing within first century Judaism that expected a resurrection from the Messiah. So it's completely outside their paradigm. And so when she sees the, the, the tomb has been messed with, she assumes right away that someone has stolen the body. Now, this is very upsetting to her. Uh, in the last, the last couple days, uh, this man that they thought was the Messiah, this man they believe was going to conquer Rome, bring in the kingdom of God, use this supernatural power that had opened the eyes of the blind, that had fed the 5,000, that had walked, that was gonna unleash that power on Rome and bring in the kingdom that um, they expected that he was about to unleash it on Rome. And instead of that, he's been arrested by Rome, tried by Rome, and executed for high treason by Rome. It's been a devastating turn of events. None of them know what to do. They're all in deep grief and deep confusion. And now this is adding injury to insult. That someone has taken the body of this godly prophetic man that God was, and, and has desecrated the body. And so she is deeply upset. And she is going to begin to run. I don't want you to catch that, run. It's kind of a, a window into her psyche. She's gonna to begin to run back to where the disciples are staying to let them know that this has happened to get their help. And so in verse, uh, in verse two, she comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know, this is most likely the apostle John, the author of this gospel. And so the, these are two of the leaders of the 12. And so she comes running to them. Uh, and, and she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put it. Now, this is interesting. This takes us back to the story we started the day with. We started the day with the story of this man who's stayed up late because he's so upset, he's afraid he won't be able to go to sleep. But even after he goes to sleep, he's late, he tosses and turns. And now he's, he's waking up with the dawn, uh, not even sure how much he's slept. And he, he realizes there's a, a, a loud, insistent knock on the front door. Who would be coming at this hour? He stumbles out of bed, he gets his clothes on and goes to answer the door. This is my version of this account. Now, we don't know for sure where Peter and John were staying. We don't know if they were staying in a house inside the walls of Jerusalem, if they were staying two miles away uh, with their, their good friend Lazarus and Mary, 
uh, and Martha and, and the town of Bethany on the Mount of Olives. We don't, we don't know that. We, they may even be camping out with the pilgrims for, for Passover on the, the Mount of Olives. We don't really know. But what we do know is it's very early that they are extremely upset and they are not expecting a visit at dawn from Mary Magdalene. And when John opens the door, he recognizes Mary. He knows Mary. Mary, uh, Mary grew up in a town called Magdala. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. We, we go there every year we go to Israel. We go to Magdala. Um, we, we know that uh, chances are she was a wealthy woman. She was one of the women that traveled with Jesus, helped support him. We know that. We also know that Jesus had freed her from severe demonization. So that they know Mary. They know her well. And she shows, uh, shows up with this very disturbing news that someone has messed with the body. And they're going to respond much like she did. They've gone through the same thing in the last couple of days. They are distraught. This is the, the ultimate insult. And so notice, they too are going to take off running. And so Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb. And both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter. So John was faster. And he reaches the tomb first. But John's not so sure he wants to go in. This is a, this is a little sketchy situation here. Uh, if someone's stolen the body, who's stolen it? Are they still in the area? What they're going to find? So John's not so sure. Remember, this is a day before electricity. It's still dawn. There's, there's a dark cave. These caves, the way they, they would be dug out, they would usually have several different niches uh, carved into this stone where the body would be laid for a year. After they would decay and turn into bones, they would put the bones together in a thing called the ossuary. The whole family would be in there together. So he's looking into this unused tomb. It's a brand new tomb. And uh, he's trying to adjust the light, and he sees the weirdest thing. He sees the strips of linen that have been used on Friday afternoon to wrap the body of Jesus with spices. He sees the strips of linen lying there by themselves. Now, this makes absolutely no sense. If you're going to steal the body, this linen... And spices is worth a lot. If you're going to steal the body, you're going to take it with the linen. And on top of that, if you're going to steal a body, you're not going to unwrap a body and take a naked, bloody corpse. It doesn't make any sense. And so as he's looking in, his mind is beginning to spit. Nothing is making sense. None of the normal explanations are making sense. But he's not sure he wants to go in. But Peter shows up, and he has no qualms. If you know Peter, he's bold, he's impetuous, he doesn't think, he just acts. And so it says in verse 5, that John bent over and he looks in and he sees the strips of linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. And so then Simon Peter, he finally catches up. I'm sure he's breathing hard, panting, you know. <gasps> and, and he just goes straight in the tomb. Like, what are you waiting for? And he, he goes in and he sees these strips of linen there. But on top of that, now that he's in the tomb, he can also see uh, when they would, when they would, 
where they wrapped these bodies, there was a special cloth, I won't go into it, but a special name for it, that would be over the head, that would cover the face. And he sees that like kind of neatly folded up over apart from where the cloths are. And he says that the, as well as the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was still lying in, in his place separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, this is John, who had reached the tomb first, he decides, okay, I think it's safe. He didn't die. So he goes in and catches, he saw and what? And this is pretty crazy. This is going to be very unusual. But for John, the moment he goes in, his mind is spinning, trying to think through the possible explanations for this strange phenomena. But as he goes in, in that moment, he has one of those aha moments where it all begins to come together. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples more than once that he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be rejected by the chief priests and leaders. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be executed. Then he was going to rise from the dead. He had told them, but he was often speaking in weird parables. They didn't understand. And there was nothing in their paradigm to suggest a Messiah would be killed. Messiahs don't lose, they win. And they'd written this off, but in that moment, for John, it all came together. It was his moment of first light. When the light began to dawn. But not so much for Peter. And so, John throws in this editorial comment in verse 9 that they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So it wasn't until later, after Jesus would school them in the Old Testament, that they'd begin to see, oh, this was part of the plan. At this point, they didn't understand. And so the disciples, they went back to wherever they're staying. Now, the next thing that's going to happen in this chapter is that Mary Magdalene, the one who had told them that the tomb was empty, remember they had left her in the dust, She's going to eventually come back, and she's going to have an encounter with Jesus. She'll be the first disciple to actually see the risen Jesus. And just for sake of time today, we're not going to go through that account. We touched on a little bit of Good Friday. But what I want to do is jump down to the next event that happens after that on that first Sunday evening of the resurrection. So, we're going to jump down to verse 19. So it's now Sunday evening. John's jumping ahead. And he says, On that evening of the first day of the week, that Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. I mean, they, their leader had just been crucified for high treason against Rome. They could be next. Uh, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he stands among them, and he says, Shalom, kind of a typical Jewish greeting, peace be with you. And after that, he shows him his hands and his side and his scars, and they're overjoyed, right? So this is their moment. John had his first light experience in the tomb, in the darkness of the tomb. This is their first experience. Now, it's interesting because as you read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, that often that when people first meet Jesus, they're surprised because in some ways, his body is very similar. This new body, I like to call it version 2.0, that this new body in some ways is very similar to his old body. Like you can see the scars in his, in his wrists. 
You can see the, the scars in his feet, the scars in his side. You can see it, but there's also something new about it. It looks different, like the same, but different. Uh, and on top of that, he has this new capabilities, like for like showing up behind locked doors. And so he's going to demonstrate. We know from the other gospels, he's gonna have, they're gonna be scared to death at first. They're, He's going he's gonna to offer to eat some fish so that they know he's not like a ghost or a spirit. Here he's going to show them his hands. and he, he gives them some incredible evidence. And so they come to faith, right? They come to the, the first light of the resurrection. They don't understand all this means, but the first light, the reality of the resurrection begins to dawn. But there's one of the 12 who's not there. Now, where he is, we don't know. He's out running a... Aaron, he's at 7-Eleven, you know. Uh, uh, hey, you're not gonna believe this. Um, whether he's, uh, he's just super depressed, he wants to be out by, we don't know where he was, but he was gone. So when he comes back, they're gonna be, they're gonna tell him, hey, the women were right. Remember the, the report from the other gospels, the women had come back, we've seen angels, they, they had written it off as nonsense. Hey, the women are right. We saw Jesus. But for this disciple, his name is Thomas, uh, he's not going to be fooled again. You know, there's that old saying, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, or, or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And he has bought into the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, back then in chapter 11, he was willing to go into harm's way and to give his life for Jesus. But now with the events of the last few days, his hopes have been crumbled that whatever Jesus was, holy man, godly man, prophet, miracles, but he's not the Messiah. And he's not gonna be taken in again. And so when he, it says in verse 24, so Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not, the, was, was not with the disciples when Jesus came that first Sunday night. So the other disciples told them, hey, we've seen the Lord. And he says, there's no way I'm believing that. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger, you can just hear almost the anger, the grief, uh, the finger where the nails were, and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. He's sort of the ultimate skeptic, but, but giving him a break, I mean, I think this is where many of the disciples would have been if they had not been, you know, if, they were, if the roles were reversed. And so a week later, so it's, it's a, the week after the resurrection, Sunday night, a week later, I'm sure it's a very awkward week for, for uh, the disciples with Thomas. But a week later, they're in the same house again, and Thomas was with them. And once again, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, shalom. And then I love this. He, he goes to Thomas, and I'm sure he, he held out his hands. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And for Thomas, of course, this is his first light moment. Now faced with overwhelming evidence. It all comes together. And I want you to catch this. For Thomas, I don't think it was just the fact of seeing Jesus there, but it's what Jesus said. Because Jesus knew what Thomas said 
when Jesus wasn't there, as far as Thomas knew. And at this moment, it all comes together, and, and I believe probably fell on his knees. I can't imagine him saying, standing up. But look what he says. He says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my what? My God. And in many ways, this is the high point of the Gospel of John. This is where it's been leading all along. I don't know if you remember, but for those of you who've been with us on this whole journey, and for those of you who haven't been, I encourage you, you could go back and, to our YouTube channel and, and kind of catch up with us in the series. But for those of you who've been with us, you remember how this gospel starts. It starts with John like a prosecuting attorney making an opening statement, making these incredible claims about Jesus, what he's going to prove. And you remember how it started? He starts his statement by saying, in the, in the beginning was the word. Remember that? And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his, that's where the story started. And what John has been doing over these next 20 chapters is laying out the evidence for that claim. He's laid out seven amazing signs, supernatural signs before the arrest of Jesus. And now he gives us the eighth and ultimate sign, the resurrection of Jesus. And so John goes on in this passage, or Jesus goes on after he falls, he says, my Lord and my God. And by the way, he's not, he's not swearing, you know. If there was ever a time to use the phrase, oh my God, like this is it. It's probably the only time, right? But he wasn't swearing. He's a conservative religious Jew. It's not what you say. For John, this was his aha moment of who Jesus really is. And then Jesus said something very profound to him. He said, Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed Blessed are those who've not seen. That's kind of like the Apostle John, right? Like the Apostle John earlier when he believed based on the circumstantial evidence, putting it all together. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And so John begins to wrap up his gospel, as we'll see when we get there in about three years. In chapter 21 is really the epilogue to this whole gospel. The main storyline ends at chapter 20. And so John has made these incredible claims about Jesus and now he walks us through the life, the teaching of Jesus. He highlights these seven signs before the resurrection. He ends up with this ultimate sign of the resurrection of Jesus as to who he is. And so this leads to a very important question for us here on this Easter weekend. And I want to simply ask this one question as we pull this all together. And the question is there in your note sheet. There's a section called First Light, the key question. And so here's the question for you. And this is a question for you, whether you see yourself as a follower of Jesus or not. We're going to come at this from a couple different angles. But the question is, what's your response to the resurrection? As you read this account with me today, as you listen to this account, 
as John's laid out this evidence, um, the question is, how do you respond to John's account of the resurrection of Jesus? Now, John himself is very clear about why he wrote this gospel and why he's ending it here with the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, there in your note sheet, I put the very next verse from John chapter 20. It says, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So remember, he's, he's wrapping up the story. He's highlighted seven of his signs, ending with the, great, the grand finale, the eight, number eight, the resurrection. And he says he's performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. I mean, there's so many other things I could have told you about, but I've not recorded them in this book. But these signs are written to bring you to the place where you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-promised king from the line of David. And even more than that, that he is the son of God, which as we've seen in John's language is God in the flesh. The word made flesh. And that by believing, by crossing that line from disbelief to belief, that you may have life in his name. As we've seen all through this series over and over, this is why Jesus has come to give us this, this new life. What Jesus often describes as eternal life, which is not just life after death, but it's this whole new quality of life, the life of God in the here and now, and then a life that will last forever with him in the coming new creation, right? And so John is very clear. This is why I've told you this story. This is why I've written down this account of my experiences over three years with the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, because I want to convince you that this is true so that you can enter into this relationship with Jesus that I've entered into that has, will, will bring you new life, this life and the next life. Now the question is, how will we respond to his account of the resurrection of Jesus? And like I say, I think we have to ask this at a couple of different levels. Because whether it's here in our worship center well, there's those of you out on the patio, over in the ridge, online. My assumption is because it's Easter, we have people here that have come to the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You've entered into that new relationship with God, the new life. And we have those who aren't, who haven't done that, who have not yet been convinced. And so I want to talk to each group. And I want to start with those of us who would self-identify, I am not yet a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure what I believe about him. I'm not sure what I believe about this resurrection account. It was interesting, a couple weeks ago, I received a call from one of our local newspapers who asked if uh, I'd be willing to be interviewed not only about our Easter services, but also about the resurrection of Jesus and why it's important to Christians. And so um, I agreed to do that. And when the time came for the interview, I said, well, you, you have to understand that, for, that, that the resurrection of Jesus is like the cornerstone of Christianity. Like without it, there is no Christianity. 
Um, and there's more than one reason, but the very first reason is that the resurrection of Jesus vindicates the claims of Jesus about who he is and about what he taught about this life and why he came, the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, Jesus made some amazing claims. Like, there in your note sheet, I put this verse from John chapter 5, earlier in John. And Jesus had just performed one of his seven signs. He had just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And it leads into conflict with the religious leaders because he healed them on the Sabbath. And so in the midst of this conversation, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, that whoever hears my word, like what I'm saying, my teaching, and believes him who sent me, right? So you listen to me, you buy into me, you buy into my father who sent me, that that person has eternal life. Now notice, he's not saying that they will one day receive eternal life. He's saying that they have it in the here and now. They've already crossed over. They don't have to wait till the end of their life to find out what's gonna happen to them after they die. They here and now, because of their belief in Jesus and the belief in the one who sent him, they've crossed over already uh, in the here and now from death to life. In fact, he goes on and he says, and they will not be judged at the end of the life, but they've crossed over from death to life. And Jesus was always saying things like this, that your eternal destiny depends on your relationship with me right now. He went on to say in the same conversation that at the end of time, when I speak, every human being who has ever lived will come back to life, they'll be resurrected, and they will go one-on-one -on -one with me, and their relationship with me will determine their eternal destiny. Now, as many people have pointed out over the years, anyone who says anything remotely similar to that is either crazy, lying, or they're who they claim to be. There are no other options. As C.S. Lewis famously said, anyone who claims to be God is either a liar who's out to manipulate you a lunatic who needs to be put away, or the Lord. He has not left us any other options. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that vindicates that he is who he says he is, and he's come to give us life. Right? And it's interesting, as you talk to different followers of Jesus. You know, we all come to Jesus in different ways. Some of us are slower than others. Some of us are smarter on the uptake for whatever reason. Uh, like even in this gospel account, this resurrection account, you see these three different paths, right? You see like the apostle John who his moment of first light comes before he sees the resurrected Jesus. He sees the empty tomb. He sees the grave clothes. He remembers what Jesus said, and it just all comes together 
There are no other options. And he believes. And I've seen this. There are some people who come to Jesus so easily, so quickly. It just makes so much sense. It seems so clear. And then there's others of us that take a much longer route. We're we're more like Mary Magdalene. She's talking to Jesus one-on-one thinking he's the gardener. (laughs) Hey, sir, do you know where you're taking the body? Just let me know. Ah, Mary, it's me. (laughs) Other of us, we're, we're like the apostles. We're hanging out, locked behind door. It's over. This game is over. We just have to be watching out for the authorities. We could be next. There's no hope of a resurrection. They're hiding for their lives. And it takes more evidence. There's some of us that are like Thomas, that I'm not believing unless I put my finger in his hands. We're the skeptics, right? But here's the thing. What matters is not whether you come easily, you come slowly, or you come over Jesus' dead body. What's important is that you come. And you know, for some of us here, I know that it's here for those online. For some of us, this is your day. The light has begun to dawn, even during this service. Like, you're like the Apostle John. You don't need a lot of convincing. As we've been talking, that light is dawning and you've stepped over that line from disbelief to belief. You're ready to give your life to Jesus and to start this new life. And if that's you, in a few minutes, I'm gonna give you that chance. But for others of us, we may be harder to convince. We may need more evidence. I'm sure I would have been like that. That would have been my story. I'm a natural born skeptic. And if that's you, I want to invite you to go on a journey. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it changes everything. And if it's true, it means that your relationship with Jesus determines your present and eternal destiny. And you owe it to yourself to do the research, to check it out, to go to the tomb, and to see if what their claim is being made is true. And you know, there's a couple easy ways to do that. I want to give you some real easy handholds. How do I do that? I mean, it's new to me. It's a lot. It's interesting. It's intriguing. But uh, I've always thought of religion is for the weak-minded. I've learned Christians is weak-minded, and that's that's not me. I want to I want to base my faith on solid evidence. How would I go about that? Well, let me give you a couple suggestions. Easy suggestions. Number one is that we're still early in this series right now. And uh, I just invite you to join us, whether you're here in person or online. Go back to our YouTube, uh, catch up on this series, and just join us as we study the life, the teaching of Jesus. We go through these signs. But a second thing that you could do is that I w- there's a couple books that I would recommend. I put them there in your note sheet. They're easy reads, um, but they're fantastic. They're both written by by men who were skeptics, men who were not followers of Jesus, men who set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, but in the process of studying the evidence, crossed over the line, like Thomas, from, from disbelief to faith, and they're, 
their lives have been changed forever. And so one of the books is called More Than a Carpenter. It's by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean. The other is called The Case for Christ, written by a man who is an attorney and once was a, a reporter for the uh, Chicago Tribune named Lee Strobel. He wrote a, a book called Case for Christ. If you're here on our campus, our bookstore is open. We've got them both available there. You can get them on Amazon. If you're not here, you can get them on Amazon easily. Um, and so, so that's, that's my challenge, my question for those of us who are not yet followers of Jesus is that what's your response to the resurrection? But I also want to ask this question for those of us who are believers, who are followers of Jesus, because this is a very important question for us to ask. If you're a follower of Jesus, you say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. The question is, what's your response? Because the reality is, is the New Testament teaches us over and over again that that when we step into a relationship with Jesus, we receive that gift of eternal life that, G- that John, Jesus is talking about, this new life of God, that we enter into a new organic relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit that we share in his death and resurrection. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we're to live resurrected lives. So for example, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he writes there in your note sheet, since then you've been raised up with Christ. He's talking about you've been resurrected with Christ. Set your heart on things above. In other words, focus your life, your priorities, your attention on the things that matter most, the things that matter to Jesus. So set your hearts on things above where where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He's not talking, he's not talking about being uh, kind of so, so heavenly-minded, you know, earthly good. He's just saying that, hey, find out what matters to Jesus and focus on what, what matters to the resurrected Jesus. If you're resurrected, should matter to you. I love what he says in his letter to the Philippians. He says, our citizenship, right, So as followers of Jesus, we're not first of all citizens of America. We're not first of all citizens of Panama or Germany or Mexico or Czechoslovakia. As Christians, our first citizenship is in heaven. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, to bring all heaven and earth under his control, healed and restored, the new heavens and new earth when he returns, he will transform our lowly bodies so it'll be like his. Men and women, this is not mythology, it's reality. And it's reality rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. You say, why is the resurrection so important? First, it vindicates who Jesus is and what he says. But secondly, the resurrection of Jesus is the first step in the resurrection of all creation. And as followers of Jesus, you and I, are gonna receive resurrected bodies, 2.0, like his, for this new creation. And because that is true, we need to be living this life for that life. Are you with me? Because that is true, 
Because within 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, however old you are, whatever is going to happen, you're going to get a new body that's physical, that's real, that's tangible for the new creation that's coming. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it's the first step of the resurrection of all creation. Mm. And so as followers of Jesus, this is why we live this life for that life because we are awaiting a savior who'll come back and transform our bodies that are mortal into bodies that are immortal. And we live for that day because our primary citizenship is there and not here. Amen? Amen. Now, this is an amazing story that Jesus says. He says that when a man, when a woman comes to Jesus, they cross over an invisible line between life and death. And if you've known someone who's given their life to Jesus, you've seen this. Father, we come to you on this celebration weekend of the resurrection of your son. And and while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, uh, my guess is that the Lord is just speaking to some of you, whether it's here uh, in the worship center, maybe you're out in the patio, maybe you're online. But this message in some way has spoken to you and that for some of you, you're ready to give your life to Jesus for the very first time. That like John when he finally went in the tomb, it's all come together. You've had your first light moment. The light is dawned. And you find that you believe. You're ready now to say, well, what do I I do now? And I want to give you a chance just to ask Jesus into your life right now and to lay down your past, like the song said, to receive his gift of eternal life, his free gift that he purchased for you with his own death but also to lay down your past, to turn from it and say like, Ashley, I want a new start. And so if that's where you're at, you wanna cross over this line between death and life that Jesus talked about. I'm gonna pray a very simple prayer right now. And I encourage you to follow along in your mind, in your brain, maybe at home, if you're by yourself or with friends, you can even say it out loud. But if you're sincere, the Lord will hear. And so let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for coming for me and for dying for me. And I ask you to come into my life and to forgive my sins, my rebellion. And I ask you to give me this new life by the gift of your spirit so I can rise with you to a new life. And not just for now, but forever. Well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just pray that prayer, first of all, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. And secondly, I'd love to write you, just send you a short letter, kind of some first steps in your new relationship with Jesus. And so if you're here in the worship center, you can just write on the back of your card, I prayed the prayer or I asked Jesus in my life. If you're out in the patio, if you're in the ridge, you can do that. If you're online, you can just email us at info at rockypeak.org. Info at rockypeak.org. And just say that you've given your life to Christ. And as a result, we'll send you a letter. Here's some steps you can take. 
while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, like I said, this message isn't just for those of us who have not yet given our life to Jesus. This resurrection, it, it raises a question for all of us of are we living in light of the resurrection? And my guess is for some of us that, that we've been one foot in, one foot out. We've not, just, we've not truly been rising with Christ to this new life and it's time for us to, to let it go. And so I just encourage you in the quietness of this moment, in the worship that we're about to sing, maybe it's later on after this service, but that you get alone with God and you surrender your life once and for all. And so Lord, we pray that as we continue in worship now, you'd meet us, that your spirit would fill this room or wherever we're listening, that we would sense that the power of the risen Jesus being with us as we worship. We pray it in your name. And everyone said, amen.